We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Matthew, and um, one, of the, one of our values here at Southlands is uh, we don't just preach topically. Every once in a while, we'll go through a topic, you know, like, you know, if it's parenting or marriage or... I don't know, whatever it is, um, and the, you know, just some life issues. But what we, we agree on, and philosophically, is that the Bible isn't silent on those issues. And so what we like to do as well is the, our main diet is to go systematically through Scripture. And what we're doing right now is we're going through the book of Matthew, pretty much verse by verse, and um, I'm enjoying this so far. You know what I love um, about the Gospels? is each author of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, has, a very, has an emphasis, yet they all are saying the same message. And you see that throughout of all of scripture. We just went through the book of Exodus, and remember how we talked about, you know, books of the Bible aren't isolated unto themselves. Um, the, whole, the whole of all of scripture refers to Jesus, and it's a story about God. And often what we do with the Bible is we reduce it to this ideology that we think the Bible's a, a blueprint for life, which it is, but really what the Bible is is a story about God. And we often turn it around and make it a story about us. Uh, but when we get it right and understand that, the, that Scripture is a story about who God is and our place, how we fit into that, then we say, oh, I get it now. This is who God is. And this is who I am in relationship to God. And my, I am subject to this beautiful and wonderful Savior that we serve and who we're singing about this morning. So we're going to dive back into Matthew chapter 3. And if you know your scripture at all, you know this is the story where John the Baptist comes on the scene in the book of Matthew. Jesus gets baptized. And so um, some of you are dreading this this morning because we're going to talk about repentance. Who is excited to hear about repentance this morning? You you woke up this morning and you're like, man, I cannot wait to get there. We're going to talk about repentance. Woo! Nobody. Nobody did. Okay. Uh, But we're going to look at why, why does Matthew highlight these things for us? And so that's where we're going to dive in today. Everybody good with that? All right. So you know what I love about John the baptizer, uh, John the Baptist? Um, He didn't, by the way, this is not where John the Baptist wasn't the first Baptist denomination, okay? Some of us often think that's where this came from. Um, John is called the baptizer or the Baptist because he baptized people in water. There you go. You just learned something probably not new, okay? You're welcome. Uh, here's, here's how John comes on the scene. If you know anything about the American history, I think I, I found this this week. I didn't know the exact date, so I had to look at this. It was April 18th, 1775. When, you guys know where I'm going this? When a 40-year-old silversmith by the name of Paul Revere dashed toward the town of Concord. And what was he yelling as he went through the towns? The redcoats are coming. The redcoats are coming. Get ready. Arm yourselves. The British are about to invade. It's not the Beatles, not the British invasion as we think of it today. The redcoats are coming. They're going to they're confiscate everything. They're going to take our arms from us. They're going to make it so that we cannot fight against them. And Paul Revere has this urgent message that he's trying to get out to this fledgling little nation that's about to become, you know, a, a, a solidified nation in 1776, right? Cracking the bell. All of this wouldn't have happened without someone crying out, hey, get ready, something's about to change. 
And John the baptizer, John the Baptist, does the same thing in what we're going to read here in Matthew chapter 3. He says, hey, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this John the Baptist was a little bit of a peculiar kind of a guy. You ever drive down to, like, Hollywood Boulevard um, or somewhere that's really urban populated and you see somebody standing out with a sign that says, the end of the world is coming, right? And you're like, oh man, what a nut job, right? And a lot of people might have thought that about John the Baptist. He was pretty peculiar. He, he lived in the desert, isolated um, by himself. He probably, I mean, I don't know, my modern day picture of what John looked like, he had like long dreadlocks for some reason. You know, he probably, he, how often do you get to shower in the desert? Not very often. So, you know, and he's wearing like a Fred Flintstone outfit. He's wearing a camel hair. He eats locusts and honey. That's his main diet. So for all you keto people, all you Whole30 guys, this guy is like super fit. He's just eating bugs, like the highest sense of protein. And when he smiles, there might be some cricket legs sticking out of his teeth. I don't know, whatever it is. And so people might have thought, man, this guy is peculiar. This guy is strange. But Matthew highlights him because he has a very important message for us. Not just for them for their time, but for us this morning. And if we just write John off as some weirdo who's crying out, well, there's that dude who lives out in a cave, then we're going to miss the message of what Matthew wants to hear us to hear. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to stop there, talk about some of the things that Matthew wants us to see, and then we're going to finish it uh, the rest of the chapter. So we're going to get through some chunky portion of Scripture this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, the, the, it'll be up on the screen. We're reading from the ESV version, and this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I, you, I was just speaking with somebody this morning who says, um, I actually went, uh, I took a trip to Israel and uh, w- went and got baptized in the Jordan River. How cool is that? And I've heard over and over when people visit uh, the nation of Israel, it just brings scripture to life. Uh, I would, wouldn't that be so great if we like took a trip to Israel? Ryan's going to organize it. All right, good job, Ryan. Um, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. Well, who's a Pharisee? What's a Sadducee and a Pharisee? Uh, these were the religious elite guys of the day. Pharisees um, considered themselves to be, you know, the most righteous because they followed all the laws and they even added laws to Scripture. And they, they you know, they, they considered their righteousness to be uh, top and supreme because they were the people who wrote the laws and they were the people who followed the laws. And so they felt very good about themselves. And then the Sadducees... Um, were, were religious as well, where they were more dealing with the temple money, and so they kind of oversaw that, and so they, they viewed themselves as these elite kind of set of people, all right? So look at what 
John says to these religious leaders in verse, uh, verse 7, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's speaking of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's stop there, and then we'll read. Let's, why don't we pray this morning? Jesus, I, I thank you for your gospel. Thank you for, the, for scripture. I thank you that it speaks to our lives, not... Um, not just in, in moments, but in every moment. I thank you that it addresses every area of our life. I thank you that it doesn't just bring us to a conclusion and leave us there, but that it continues to work in our hearts. And for those of us this morning who identify as Christians, who have put our hope and our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we just surrender our hearts to you even now. And we ask, Holy Spirit, will you speak to us? Will you Will you change us? Will you make us more like Jesus through the power of your word? And maybe for those of us here this morning who are seekers or are maybe not sure where we stand, will you, Holy Spirit, by your power, will you come and reveal the truth of who God is in a powerful way? Whether we're one or the other this morning, we want to be better people. We want to be more like Jesus. And so we ask you to come and do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew gives us this picture of John. He sets the stage of what's happening during this time. Jesus has already been born. This has been about 25 years or so since the birth of Christ. Uh, and, and so well, a little bit longer than that, some commentators say here or there. And so John is actually the cousin of Jesus. If you didn't know that, you may have seen in the other scriptures, particularly in Luke, Elizabeth and Zechariah are pregnant in their old age. Uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant first, and she has John in her womb. And, and the Bible talks about uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and, and this miraculous thing happens to John the Baptist while he's in Elizabeth's womb is that he leaps with joy uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And so we might think, like, John is this weird kind of guy, but Jesus even himself spoke highly of John. He says he was one of the greatest men to ever walk the, the face of the earth, considering the Old Testament prophets. So we should pay close attention to John's message. And so Matthew specifically points it out. And I would suggest that Matthew's pointing out three things for us. Of course, there's always three, right? Any preacher ever have four or five? You know, not usually. It's always three. It's always alliteration. Well, we're not going to do alliteration this morning. You're welcome. Um, so I'm going to give us three things that I think uh, Matthew is trying to highlight in John's message to us. And that, number one, is why we all came here this morning is repent. Woo, excited for that. Repentance. Now, most of us here this morning don't 
like the idea of repent. If we do, uh, somehow we've kind of like wrestled with it enough in our Christian faith where we kind of like, it's like take your medicine, right? Um, okay, I'll do that because I'm a Christian. I'll do that because I know repentance is good for me. It's like eating my broccoli. Um, and so we want the vitamins of repentance, but we don't necessarily always want the taste of repentance. And so I want us to, let's change our perspective on what repentance is and what it isn't. Let's allow Scripture to encourage us to repent, all right? So here's, here's the definition of repentance. Um, it means a change of heart and mind leading to a change of action. A change of heart and mind leading to a change of action. Now, what does that mean? That You've heard some preachers say it's a 180 degree change, right? You ever heard a preacher say that? It's like when you're walking toward one way, so you've lived a life of sin and debauchery or whatever. It is just pleasure seeking and you only go toward, you know, whatever your flesh feels satisfied in. And so that's the way you walk. It's like, oh, candy. I'm going to go over there. And then the candy moves. And it's like, oh, it's over here. And then, oh, look, it's over here, right? And candy, I say candy. Um, but when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts, something amazing happens in us, and it calls us to this life of repentance. And so all of a sudden, uh, God speaks to us and says, I no longer am calling you to just seek what gives your flesh pleasure. I'm calling you to seek what gives the Father pleasure. And so we submit and we willingly repent. And so what we do is we turn away from the things that our flesh desires and we turn towards God. And so in our mind, and also in our, in our heart, in our emotions, all, all of us, we say, Lord, I'm giving this up, and I'm turning toward you, and I'm going to start walking toward the things that you've called me to. So what does repentance include? If it's this change of mind, change of heart, that leads to a change of action. First thing I would suggest is that repentance includes sorrow for sin. Now, that doesn't mean, like, when you, you ever, like, reprimand your kids and um, your kids got caught with their hand in the cookie jar? You ever, you know what I'm talking about, parents? Or they're doing something, they get caught red-handed and you, you um, apply the grace of Jesus to their backside a little bit in those moments. I don't know, for those of you who still do that, we still do that. No, not anymore. Our kids are, like, past that age, right? Maybe Judah. But you, you, however you discipline your children and you see tears come and you think, oh my gosh, this child is so repentant. That's normally not the situation. What often happens is this child is crying. Why? Because they got caught. Or they're reaping the benefits of their behavior of grabbing the cookie from the cookie jar. So often, you and I view repentance that way. We think, okay, God caught me. And then there's these circumstances or consequences for being caught, and we feel sorrow in our heart, but that's not true repentance. Repentance isn't just this, oh man, I got caught, and now this, this is terrible. I'm having to deal with the, the consequences. Repentance is sorrow because you broke the heart of God. You ever have your dad or your mom, you know this saying, son, I'm not, uh, I'm not upset with your action, I'm just, or I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed right? And it's like, oh, that's the worst. 
Somebody who you really love, somebody who you really value their opinion ever tell you that they're disappointed in you? That is worse than like the spanking, in my opinion. And for us to have a godly attitude of repentance, yes, there needs to be sorrow, but it needs to be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. A a godly sorrow that says it's not just the fact that I got caught, it's the fact that I broke God's law. This person that I love, I trampled on what they value. Uh, This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's a key. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnest uh, eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear... What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So, although I write to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And so Paul, what he's doing is he's telling the Corinthian church, he's saying, listen guys, yes, there is sorrow to be had in repentance, but it's not because you got caught. The worldly grief, that's what that is. Godly grief leads towards righteousness. So ask yourself, even when you repent to God, say, Lord, is, this, is there a sorrow in my heart because I'm breaking your laws? Is there a sorrow in my heart because I'm doing wrong by you and I want to do right by you? Or is this a sorrow in my heart because, man, I got caught? Not only does repentance include sorrow for sin, repentance includes confession of sin. Ooh, that's even one further step that it's even harder to go. Uh, This is what the psalmist says in 32, 5, Psalm 32, 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Isn't that beautiful? What's our first response when we get caught or when we sin? It's often to cover it and to hide it up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's a little funny story. You guys know Brian and Rachel Barr are going to be here uh, in a couple weeks, and um, I'm going to tell a story about him. Shh. No. Okay. It's all right. He's told the story from the front. So one day... Um, he's outside barbecuing in his house. And um, if you don't know Brian and Rachel, this is a perfect scenario for them because they're both kind of A-type personality, right? They're like, where's this, where, you know. So Brian is uh, about to grill some chicken on his barbecue and he can't find his barbecue tongs. So of course, Brian thinks Rachel put them away somewhere in a different place that he wouldn't know and he's frustrated. So he's got the grill going. He put the chicken on, and now he can't, like, flip them over. So he comes in, he comes in the house. He's like, Rachel, where are my tongs? And she's like, 
trying to be sweet. Oh, I don't know, babe. I don't know. Where'd you put him? He says, I didn't put him anywhere. I left him in the same place I did last time. I know you cleaned him and you probably put him in a drawer somewhere. So he's like 15 minutes searching through. She's trying to be humble and gracious. And she's like trying to find where the drawer is. She's like, I don't know. So he's like, dang it. So he's just ticked, right? He goes back outside. Well, lo and behold, where are the tongs? They're right sitting on the barbecue where he left them last time, okay? So now Rachel comes out. Brian's barbecuing. What does he do? <laughs> Throws the tongs in the bushes. <laughs> Why? Because he didn't want to confess his sin. <laughs> we'll bring this story up again when he's here. It's a funny story, but it's so true. We do this with one another, right? But we often do it with God. We don't want to repent. Why don't we repent? Why don't we do this? Well, I'm going I'm to give us a couple things why I think repentance sometimes is a problem for us. It is one, we fear repentance. We fear admission. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a home where your, your folks were like, man, hardcore, your dad or your mom was just really harsh. If they ever caught you with anything, you know, the idea of you having to confess to your parents is like, man, they're going to overly discipline me. And so the, you take this idea of over-discipline, you bring it to God, and so you think somehow God is going to treat you this way. Let me, let me just free you from that this morning. That is a lie from the enemy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. See, what the enemy wants to do is to, get you, believe, to get, get you to believe that lie so that you don't confess your sin, so that you don't become more like Jesus. And if he can stranglehold you and put fear over you that somehow if I confess my sin to God, he's going to punish me and crush me, you don't understand the gospel. The other reason why uh, we often don't repent is sometimes we, we don't think it's that bad, Right? Like, I didn't really sin that bad. I didn't really mess up that bad. Actually, I'm way better than Isaac, right? Isaac really messed up, but I didn't mess up as bad as Isaac. So Isaac should be really the one who repents. And so what we do is we compare ourselves with other people and we say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that lady. I'm not, I, you know, I didn't do this and this and this. And so therefore, I really am not that bad. See, again, we don't understand the gospel. That if we want, if there's like little ounce of sin in our hearts, we're guilty of it all. We're sinners in need of a savior. What about the fact that we don't understand freedom in repentance? Did you know that when you confess your sin, it sets you free? Did you know that that thing that we're so often scared to hold on to and that if somebody knows this truth about me and what I did, it only binds ourselves. It doesn't protect us. And God's means of grace in your life is repentance. Often what we think of is repentance as evil. We think of repentance as the enemy because it'll expose me. But what repentance does is it brings freedom no matter what the consequences of that is. Do you trust God again? 
Do you trust God with being fully obedient to him, even if it means confessing your sin? Let me throw out a question to you. Do you have somebody in your life that you can confess your sin to? Often we think of, oh, yeah, 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 I confess the sin. Yeah, I do that. Does someone in your life know every secret about you? Is there somebody that you could go to and say, man, I messed up. Will you pray with me? Will you encourage me? Will you remind me again of the truth of the gospel that even though I messed up, Jesus paid it all? Do you have somebody like that in your life? If you don't, that's not good. Repentance, what's another element of repentance? Repentance happens as a result of the kingdom, not the other way around. What do I mean by that? Often what we do is we take repentance and we make it a religion thing. There's other religions that do that, right? You sit in a booth and you have to say a certain thing and then all of a sudden that's what makes you godly. No, it's the other way around. It's the fact that the kingdom of God has come so therefore it paves the way for us to have a grace, a grease-skidded repentance. Does that make sense? Often what we do is we try to force this repentance and God will be happy with me. God will find favor with me if I repent. Then he'll be a big smile ear to ear. And no, it's the fact that God is already smiling ear to ear, which empowers us to repent. and empowers us to not fear. It empowers us to not think of ourselves too highly than we ought. Uh, a great illustration of this is Isaiah in chapter 6. We've said this so many times before. But Isaiah the prophet, he's in this situation where the king has died. And all of a sudden God reveals himself to him in a powerful way. And Isaiah says what we all would say if God were to reveal himself to us. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips, and I am a person of unclean lips. And he confesses his sin, his sin, and God sends one of the angels, grabs a coal from the altar, and touches his lips, and purifies Isaiah so that he can empower him to prophesy to the nation of Israel, to that very message of repent, the same message that Isaiah is carrying in his heart. So this is why repentance is good news, believe it or not, for us as Christians. What's the other thing that John is saying? Well, it's the obvious one here. It's to be baptized. John is saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, for the kingdom of heaven has come. But then he calls people to not just this inward repentance, but he calls them to an outward action of, of baptism. So here's what I want us to understand this morning. John's baptism was only unto obedience and repentance, okay? For us this morning living after Christ has come, we live in this beauty of, of, of baptism. Is, it's, it's this baptism of Christ that we experience, and so baptism, John's calling them saying, repent, be baptized. When you go under the water, do this. But I want us to take a moment and just, for those of us, I don't think it's ever been preached here since we've been going for a year. Just kind of the elements of what baptism is. We're going to be baptizing next week. Uh, for those of you who have not been baptized, man, this is a great opportunity. We're going to celebrate with you. We actually have a, have a horse trough, as fancy as we get. And because we're in Chino, we get a horse trough. We fill it with water. We do heat it up. You're welcome. For those of you 
who uh, want to get baptized, we heat it up, and then what we do is we baptize you, and we celebrate it like crazy because of what I'm going to talk about, what baptism represents here. When we become a Christian and we are baptized, we're baptized into Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what it means for us when we go into the waters. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 6, 3 through 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what is baptism? Baptism we, we, you probably heard, if you've been in the church, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality, okay? Um, it's, it's something that has trans- taken place inside you, inside your spirit. You've come alive. You've been transformed. The Bible speaks about our new identity in Christ. We've been, we, it's like the idea of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, right? The caterpillar was once this little icky thing. That's a caterpillar. Crawling and all squirmy and scrunchy with its legs and looking nasty. And then all of a sudden it goes through this transformation. Something, I mean, the, the, butter, the caterpillar liquefies, which is like, I don't understand God in your creativity. The, the, the caterpillar liquefies and then God in his design with creativity and creation, he reforms that liquid and it starts to form wings and all these. And so what it comes out is this beautiful Butterfly, right? And that's what happens to us in baptism or in, in, in our salvation. And so baptism represents that. The action of going under the water represents us being buried with Christ. So that's why we fully submerge here. We, we don't just sprinkle, you know, Hapshu! you are now baptized in Jesus' name. We don't do any of that. We fully submerge people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the action of coming out of the water illustrates a new life in Christ. We're saying... When we're baptized, it's out with the old, in with the new, right? And it's a public confession of our faith. So, some, some questions around baptism. Why don't we get baptized every time we sin? Have you ever thought about that? You ever been in church cultures that teach you, okay, like you walked away from Christ and now you got to get rebaptized? Well, this is why. Because baptism doesn't save us. It's just an illustration. It's just a symbol. If it did save us, the thief on the cross, Jesus would be a liar. Him saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. I don't recall anywhere in the gospel where Jesus said, okay, hold on, let's pause time. Let's get the thief off the cross. Let's do some baptism. And then, okay, now we put you back on the cross and today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just not there, no matter how much we want it to be. And so baptism, the act of baptism itself does not save us. God does that work through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming and regenerating our hearts to be like Jesus. But it's a symbol of us saying, hey, it's a public confession. I have given my life over to Jesus, and now I want everyone to see it. And so I'm going to go under the water, and I'm going to come back up. And this is an illustration of what has happened inside of me. And that's why we don't, every time, if we messed up, if we sin, we don't go, man, i got to get baptized again. Because the act of baptism itself doesn't save us, Okay? We don't get baptized every time you sin. You will most likely continue to sin after you get baptized. Ugh, dang it. But for the believer, 
there's an ongoing heart attitude of baptism in us. There's an ongoing surrender. That's the repentance piece. That's the sanctification process that as we as Christians, when we say yes to Jesus, we're baptized. And the, the things like the candy, where we are like, ooh, candy over here, and God calls us to repent, it gets easier and easier to say no to the candy because we know the goodness of our creator. And so for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, you'll say, yeah, the things I used to struggle with when I was like 20, I don't struggle with them anymore. Not because I've become such a good person, but because the Holy Spirit loves me so much. God is so committed to me that he keeps drawing my attention away from the candy of the world and he puts my attention on the, the good things of God. And he's committed to you. And if that's not happening, man, ask yourself why. Are you, are you not surrendering to God? Are you, have you placed your faith and hope in Jesus? Last one here, guys. You guys okay? I know this is a lot of information. This morning's kind of like a teaching, less than a preach. But So John calls us to repent. John says, hey, be baptized. And then in number three, he tells us to bear fruit. Look at verses 7 through 9 when he speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, But when he saw many of them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, coming to, to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers? He's like, You liars? You snakes? You, you, you duplicit, duplicit people? That's, all, and that's the Kelly version. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So let's stop there. What is, what is John telling these religious people? Bear fruit, and, that, and, and, and not in a result of your standing in your... See, see, here's the thing. Did you know that by walking through these doors this morning, and you coming to church doesn't make you a Christian? I mean, most of us know that, right? But sometimes we live our lives that way. Did you know that if you grew up in a Christian home, your parents were like super religious and they were at church every Sunday and they, they gave their money to the church and they, they, they designated their time on holidays and they brought you to like downtown LA and you served on Thanksgiving in a soup kitchen and you were there and you were happy about it and you felt good about yourself. Did you know that that doesn't make you a Christian? All of that stuff means nada when it comes to our salvation. The thing that means everything in our salvation is the power of the Holy Spirit changing and regenerating our hearts and letting us see that we are sinners in need of a Savior and us repenting. And like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they said, hey, 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 Abraham's our dad, so we're good. We don't need to repent. We don't need to bear any fruit, you know. And so some of us here this morning, we're saying, um, well, well, here, here's the question I would throw out to you. An apple tree bears what kind of fruit? Apples. An orange tree bears what kind of fruit? Oranges. And we all know this illustration, but sometimes what we do is to be able to try to fake it. Well, there's this guy named Paul Tripp, and he has this illustration called apple nailing. And what we do is we go pick up all these dead apples that fell from the tree, and we get our, our nail gun, and we get our ladder out, and we climb up the tree, and we hold our bushel of apples, and we go, right? And, and then if you were to stand back and look at the tree and go, oh my goodness, look at the apples on that tree. You must be a great horticulturist. 
Look at you, what are you doing to the soil? That, and then after a week, what happens to the apples? They start to shrivel and look nasty. And now all of a sudden, the chino flies are all around the tree. <laughs> and that's what John is saying. He's saying, don't just nail the apples to your tree. Bear the fruit. Now, we can only bear fruit of what we are. And if you are a Christian, if you've been saved, if you've been regenerated, if you've been transformed, if the Holy Spirit has come into you and made you a new creation, and you've been transformed like that worm to a butterfly, you can't help but be a butterfly. There's nothing else you can do. And the fruit that your life will produce will be that of the Holy Spirit. And so often what we try to do is go around and look at my tree. It's so full of fruit. That's the way of the world, friends. And that is fruit is fruit. Whatever you are is what you bear. Now here is the crux of our message this morning. Matthew chapter 13 or chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Let's finish the rest of our text. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Speaking of John, and when Jesus was baptized, Immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Isn't that beautiful? Man, imagine being there, seeing and hearing that. This is like a crazy moment in Scripture. Now, it makes us ask the question, why in the world would Jesus get baptized? I mean, he never sinned. He never, he never needed to repent. He never, he never did anything wrong. Zero. So why does Jesus submit himself unto baptism? Well, I'm so glad you guys asked that question this morning. Because... It's the whole reason why our baptism means anything when we do it. See, if we were just doing baptism out of obedience and out of religion, it has no power in itself, right? It doesn't save us. See, when Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father, one, he was doing it to be obedient because that's what Jesus was all about always, being obedient to the Father. But when Jesus submitted himself to baptism, he did it on behalf of you and me as well. See, we identify with Christ's baptism. And by Jesus submitting himself and and fulfilling the act of baptism, he's saying, in you, I place all of who you are in me. And so when I am baptized, now when you're going to experience the baptism of Christ, which is not just repentance and obedience, which is John's baptism, but now you will experience the fullness of a new life in Jesus. So when Paul says, you are now baptized in Christ, that means the Holy Spirit's alive in us. That means we become a new creation. Why? Because Jesus was baptized himself and included us in that baptism. See, all of this stuff, we could try to do all the religious good things, it means zero if it wasn't 
for Jesus being baptized on our behalf. What kind of savior? What kind of king? What kind of God does something like that? Who would subject himself, who would humble himself, become a man, and be baptized as if he would somehow need to repent? The kind of God, the kind of Savior who saw this very moment in time this morning, who saw what's going to happen next week with however many people we baptize, whether there's one or a billion, it's probably not going to be a billion. So, <laughs> saw that moment and said, I will submit myself in humility, not to repent, but so that all of us here this morning could be included in that baptism so that we could have new life so that we could repent and not be afraid, so that we could experience the goodness of our God. Will you stand with me this morning?